0: Okay, we are doing the Ten Commandments. Now we are at commandment number six. Thou shalt not kill is how the King James translates it. I'm going to argue that that's a particularly bad translation um, as we talk about that a little bit. Um, as a matter of fact, I mean, it, it, you know, the word, it's really four words. It's really two words in the Hebrew. So it's a short, short little verse, short little text tonight. But it encompasses really everything the Bible has to say about loving your neighbor. is is captured and is compassed in this commandment. I've been telling you that the commandments are kind of shorthand for all of the other laws and commands and the vision that the Bible has for what human flourishing looks like and what community should be about. And so it is with this one. Um, Jesus said, right, that all the laws and commandments hang on, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the first um, table of the law, sometimes people call it, some, the first five or first um, four, depending on who who's doing the counting, are really more focused specifically on love the Lord your God. And now we're into the section that is really directed outward, and yet, as we're going to see, the, the, it's still connected to God. We still have this preface to all of the Ten Commandments, which is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, And then God gives these commands, not just to remind us of what he made us for and what he made us to be like, but also to give his people a vision and a blueprint for what community should look like and the way that they should live with each other. And so we come to this one. Thou shalt not kill, or thou shalt not murder, or thou shalt not kill unlawfully. Um, and, And you go, gosh, you know, why should he have to say that to a church? Why should he have to say that to a church? Well, you know, it's interesting. It's not the last time that those sorts of things have been um, said, to a, said to a church. Paul, in the letter to the Galatians, um, accuses the people that he's writing to there of biting and devouring one another because they've lost, they've lost their understanding of grace. Churches, like every other community, need to hear this word because this word is so much more than just about killing. It's about everything. Everything. It's about everything, how we treat people as made in the image of God. So before we dig into this, let's pray together. Lord, we do ask you to help us as we consider the implications of the fact that you have created man to be in your image. The implications for how we think and live among your image bearers uh, are before us tonight, Lord, and we pray that you would help us. Not just to learn, but Lord, help us to repent, help us to be um, people who are willing to think differently about life because of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The heart of this commandment, the heart of this commandment um, is that we are to reverence God and honor life. And I chose those words very carefully because I think sometimes when people talk about this command and, the, and what the Bible has to say about life, and you start having debates about, well, how does this play into war and capital punishment and abortion and euthanasia, we're going to talk about all those things tonight. We're going to cover all those topics, because they all, you know, not very deeply, obviously, but we're going to talk about each of them, because they're all important implications of this command. But I think sometimes you can get so caught up in all of those ethical dilemmas and whatnot that we lose sight of the, of the real heart of this command, which is that we honor God and reverence reverence God and honor life. We honor life, we honor God's image bearers, but this command, as you're going to see, in the context of the rest of Scripture, actually is a a little more complicated than it might appear at first glance. It seems really basic and really easy. Don't kill. That's what the King James says. If you grew up in a church where they have the King James, it seems easy. You don't kill. But then you start reading the Bible, and you find, oh, is that what it, it means? So, did, did, you know, I mean, Moses goes on and writes the rest of the Ten Commandments, the rest of the of the law that was given to him at the same time this was given to him has all kinds of instructions, 30 death-punishable offenses in the Israelite Old Testament law. So how does that jive with do not kill? And then you see God telling his people to go and kill all these other pagan peoples in the Promised Land. How does that jive with do not kill? Do we have here just this glaring example of why the Bible is not to be trusted because it's full of contradictions? I think not. I think that we need to read it a little more carefully because to understand this commandment means that it will make sense of all of Scripture. The Bible has a lot to say about killing, but the Bible has also a lot to say about human flourishing and what does it mean and how should we deal with those who bear God's image in community that's what the heart of this is about and the first point is this all of God's creation deserves our care that's an implication of this when when this the Hebrew word there's actually eight Hebrew words for killing that's interesting, isn't it? We've probably got more in English though, so I don't know if that, that proves very much of anything. But it is interesting that the word that's used here in the Ten Commandments is a word that is never, never used for the killing of animals. It's a word so when this command says, Do not kill, it's it nev- it doesn't use a word that's it uses a word that's never used for killing animals. It uses a word that's never used in a military warfare context. So it uses a word for kill that is not Uh, talking about military killing or warfare killing, it uses a word that is never used for death penalty kinds of situations. It's never used in a judicial um, law context, okay? Now, that's important because when you just read do not kill or do not murder, see, neither of those are great translations because it's talking about a specific kind of killing and it's talking about something that's more broad than murder but less all-encompassing than kill. And so that's why probably the best translation is, do not kill unlawfully. But as soon as you say that, you say, well, okay, that's great. Well, what's lawful killing and unlawful killing? Now, some people might want to argue and say, well, all killing is unlawful. And that's why I chose the word uh, uh, reverence God and honor life. We are to honor life, but we don't put the life as the absolute the absolute life and the continuance of life is not as absolute as honoring God and his word. That's, that's a pretty important distinction, but it's probably a challenging one for a lot of people. It probably runs, I, I guess, somewhat against the grain of even your own heart at times, which says, how could God ever be about killing? It's probably why we don't like to talk about hell and we don't like to talk about, you know, the Old Testament very much. Though, of course, the New Testament is full of this kind of stuff as well. Now, again, you know, my job here is not to kind of beat us up and say, what is God telling us and why? Why does he say, why does he say, do not kill unlawfully? and, And what does that mean? Because clearly God sanctions a lot of killing in the Bible. I know you know that. I know that it probably bothers you. It bothers me. So how are we to make sense of all that? I think that rightly understanding this commandment will help us make sense of all of that, killing that goes on in the Bible. I really do. I don't think we need to run away from this commandment and say, well, gosh, I wish God hadn't said that because he really overstated you know, what he was trying to say because, gosh, after all, he does a lot of killing. No, he, he says here, he says here, you should not unlawfully kill. You should not unlawfully kill. Now, why do I say that? Or what's the reason for that? The reason is, is given in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. I don't know, um, well, I actually, I put it down here. It's under like the fourth little bullet point where it says we need to ask why are we forbidden from unlawful killing. And the answer is this, because man is made in God's image, and we are to count his image as dear and precious wherever we find it. Genesis 9.6 says that. Um, It says this, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. Now, there's some who try to argue, well, that's just a general statement that's saying that if you kill somebody, then you're probably going to get killed. That might be a possible interpretation if it didn't have the reason, the second half of the verse, there. The reason makes it not just a general statement about what typically happens in warlike, feudal societies, but it makes it a command. Whoever sheds the blood of man, his blood should be shed because he has attacked and defaced the image of God. Now, that is basic pretty early on. It's before the Ten Commandments are even given. And it's really important to understand why there are so many of these laws in the Old Testament and and in the New as well that take killing, even unintentional killing, so seriously. You will find, for instance, that there are There are laws in the Old Testament not just about deliberate premeditated murder. That's why do not murder is not a very sufficient translation of this. Because this law encompasses what if you have a bull that's in the the habit of goring people and you don't keep him locked up. There's a responsibility that you bear for that. What if you build a house and you decide to cut some costs and so you don't build a railing around the roof in a day when people did a lot of stuff on the roofs of their houses and someone falls off and is killed. Well, you're responsible for that. See, God is concerned about the image that he has put in mankind, whether they are, it, it is killed, a death that happens by accident, by recklessness, or by premeditated murder. All of those are violations of what he intended and what he calls human beings to be about. But there are all kinds of places where God says it is appropriate and allowable to take even a human life. And that, if, you, if, you, if you're not open to that, it's going to be really hard to make sense of the Bible. If you sort of have as your bedrock presupposition that God is always against killing in every context, I, I would just submit to you, I don't think you actually got that from the Bible. Because I don't think if you read the Bible fairly, you will draw, derive that conclusion there're just way too many things that you have to sort of sort of leave out or ignore to fit that position. However, I hope that we, as we go through this, you will come to understand that God in even sanctioning the taking of human life is not therefore saying human life is not valuable, actually just the contrary. He's saying because human life is so precious to me and should be so precious to you, there are situations in which the taking of human life is justified. But all of those situations, as we're going to see, involve protection of human life. It's a very important point. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here. Now, as you go through the reasoning from Genesis 9, it's because man is made in the image of God that clues you into the fact, oh, God has said other things about how we're to treat his image bearers. And so, like many of these commandments, even though it may state the negative, the positive is included in this as well. We are to not take human life unlawfully, but we also are to do everything within our power to care for and to nourish human life, flourishing human life. Now, I think um, a really helpful way of getting at sort of the all-encompassing nature of this commandment is on the back of this green paper. There's a document called the Westminster Larger Catechism, um, bunch of guys sat down for about four or five years and poured over the scriptures and prayed and really thought about what, what does the Bible say about all kinds of things, and very helpful. We actually have a small group that's going through the shorter catechism, which is the, kind of the abridged version of the larger catechism that was written for junior high students, though I think people in the study would tell you that it's, it's pretty challenging. Um, never mind the larger catechism, but sometimes the larger catechism is helpful Um, and especially on the Ten Commandments. There's some really interesting stuff in there. Um, And and I wanted us to read these two two questions. What are the duties required in the Sixth Commandment? What what does the Sixth Commandment imply that we should do positively? Listen to all this. The duties required in the Sixth Commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors. Studies, I mean thinking about it, planning, working. Um, To preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes subduing all passions and avoiding all occasions, temptations and practices which tend to the unjust taking away the life of any. So you need to work hard to not get yourself in a situation where you might accidentally unjustly take the life of anybody. You should take care, right? It goes on. It says, or um, by a just defense thereof against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, Cheerfulness of spirit. Listen to this. A sober use of meat, drink, physic, which is their word for medicine. Sleep. The sixth commandment says that you should take care of your body, care for the image of God in man that is you, and get enough sleep. Uh Uh-huh. Need I go on? Labor. That you should recreate positively. It's commanded. By charitable thoughts, love. Compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild, and courteous speeches and behavior. If people are made in the image of God, you should give them honor and respect and be courteous. Forbearance, readiness to be reconciled. God calls you to have a readiness to be reconciled. Hmm. Patient bearing and forgiving of injuries, because to not do that makes it more likely that you're going to hate and that you're going to maybe even do violence to somebody. The requiting of good for evil. You should give good when evil is given to you. Comforting and succoring the distressed. And protecting and defending the innocent. That's all the positives. Now how about the negatives? What are the sins forbidden in the Sixth Commandment? The sins forbidden in the Sixth Commandment are all taking away the life of ourselves or of others, except in case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense, We'll talk more about those because I I know those are somewhat controversial. The neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life. So you're not allowed to starve somebody. The Bible actually talks about that if you have a prisoner, that you're not allowed to deprive them of food or of water and that sort of thing. Um, You are forbidden from sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, distracting cares, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, and recreations, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatsoever else tends to the destruction of the life of any. So it's a big command. A lot of stuff contained in this because, again, it's about doing what you can to promote the flourishing of human life because human beings are made in God's image and being against and working against whatever works to the destruction of what God intended for his human beings made in his image. Right now, I know that you know that some of the, the implications are quite controversial, even among Christians in our own day. Um, but I'll tell you, you know, b- before we kind of get into all those things, because they mostly have to do with negative things, like war. You know, is war forbidden? Is euthanasia forbidden? Is abortion forbidden? We're going to talk about those. Those are on the back. Um, but before we do that, I don't want us to pass over the positive side of it, because I want you to understand. Think about this: the Bible says that Christians should be committed to the right view of human flourishing and should pray to that end and should work to that end as it's within their power. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means this. There are a lot of differing opinions about what human beings are made for and about what the good life is. And Christians have vision of that. The Bible has a vision of that. But there are a lot of other people that have visions of that. The consumer culture that we live in has a very contrary vision of what human flourishing looks like, right? It, it, the consumer culture says, you know, um, well, you, 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 know, you, know, you know the commercials, you know. Um, buy, your, your identi- buy your way to an identity, to a self that you like. Um, make sure that you have a credit card because there might be some priceless experience that you're never going to have unless you can spontaneously buy it, right? Nothing worth having will you ever save for or plan for, you know. So you're going to need that credit card. Um, That's a vision of what human flourishing is about. And, And if you kind of step back and think about whenever you watch an advertisement, whenever you watch a movie, whenever you listen to a piece of music, what is the vision of human flourishing that this is putting forth? It has a vision. Maybe it's maximum freedom. Be free from everybody. And it's why we live in a, in a world that is so desperate for community, because Western individualism has a vision of human flourishing that says your goal in life should be to be free of everything except what you want to do. This moment. You shouldn't even, you shouldn't even be constrained by what you wanted to do before. You should be spontaneous to be able to do it right now. That's a vision of human flourishing. And I was talking to some friends of mine, actually, you know, um, about this, and, and it comes up in so many different ways, you know. Um, We were talking, actually, about this amendment that's up for election, though I I read in the student paper that most of you guys aren't going to vote, so I don't don't know if it's even worth talking about this. But there is, you know, uh, there's this movement all over the country now to have constitutional amendments to deal with what is marriage. And uh, some friends of mine said, well, you know, we've got friends who um, are, you know, in a homosexual relationship, and they're really offended by the fact that, that you know, we're, that this is on the ballot and we're talking about this and we're trying to think, how do we think through this issue? And I'm not going to tell you how to vote on this, but I'm just going to tell you that we have, Christians have, a view of human flourishing and how marriage fits within that. But we also don't believe that marriage is the savior for our culture. Now, you work that out and think about that. But Christians are not neutral on the issue of what God made people for and the kinds of relationships that he wanted them to be in. But listen, you know, there's problems all over the place with relationships, in traditional marriage and in other visions of what marriage should be. And, and so this command touches on all that, do you see? It touches on this issue of what did God make us for? What promotes the well-being of his image bearers? That's what we should be thinking about, that's what it should be about. True community, actually, is really at the heart of this commandment. And and I like the way John Calvin puts it, the very top, the quote at the very top. He says, the purpose of this commandment is this, the Lord has bound mankind together by a certain unity, hence each man ought to concern himself with the safety of all. If there's any commandment that says we're all in this together, it's this one. God has made all of us his image bearers, and we are to care for all of his image bearers. We are to care for his image wherever we find it. So true community is at the heart of this command, um, and yet it's difficult to, to, to think about this command unless you bring all of Scripture and what Scripture has to say to bear on how we understand this command. And when you do that, you find that there are situations in the Bible, lots of them, in which killing is not not only... Approved, but even commanded by God. But I, I will I will argue with you, and if you know we don't have time to look at all those, but I would argue with them that protection of the community and protect and and his vision of what human flourishing should be about is always at the heart of even those examples and those situations where c- killing is either approved or commanded. Uh, there's a Dutch theologian, um, Dalma, I guess is how you say his name, who says this. The Sixth Commandment is speaking about a very specific kind of killing, one that does not serve society but rather violates society. If you want to look at that more, you can read his book. I don't have time to talk about all that stuff. But just to say this, there are situations in which, biblically speaking, um, killing is allowed. But again, it's important to note that all of these allowances are for the purpose of the protection of life in this fallen world. Even the king who, you know, in the, in the ancient world seemed to have absolute power to do whatever he wants, has to answer to God for what that king does with God's image bearers. Self-defense, capital punishment, just war. I know Christians disagree about those things, but they actually are pretty clear biblically. That's why the, the catechism includes those in there. We're going to talk about them when we turn this page over. And I think that there's a lot of confusion about this today, and sometimes it gets me a little, a little disturbed. I, I hear slogans like, you know, when Jesus said, love your enemies, I'm pretty sure he didn't mean kill them. And I say, it really misses the point of what the Bible has to say about this issue. Yes, he meant that for you personally. But he, he says that the that the state is his agent to bear the sword, to punish wrongdoers. Why? Not because God hates people. Because God loves people so much that he takes it seriously when people deface his image and he has not appointed you to take vengeance yourself in Romans 12:19 I, I put down here 12:9 that's a bad typo it's 12:19 he says do not take vengeance yourself but leave vengeance to the lord but then in the very next chapter Paul says that the state is God's agent of wrath one of the ways in which God exercises his wrath against wrongdoers is by the state bearing the sword. And bearing the sword, the Greek word used there, refers to execution. It doesn't refer to a slap on the wrist. And that's even true of states that are not Christian. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't work hard to make sure that that's applied in the most appropriate, fair way possible? No, of course. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But, The Bible does say that there are places when killing is sanctioned, but it's not you. It's not you personally taking that to bear. So, you know, I hear that slogan, I say, well, that that sounds nice, it sounds persuasive, but it misses this really important distinction. There's a huge distinction between what the state is called to do and what individuals are called to do, and that's why... The, the you know Christians have been pretty much uniformly agreed on this kind of stuff: just war, capital punishment, and um, self-defense. They've been agreed on that for a long time. The pacifism position is a more recent position, and one that I'm not convinced of biblically. But we can get coffee and talk about that more if you want. Um, so, what are some of the situations? How, let's, let me let me get into some of the applications of this stuff, okay? Again, you know, I talked about human flourishing, so I think I already talked about that. Turn, turn the page over, and we'll talk about some of, the, some of the issues that are swirling around in our day and how does this command speak to this. Um, euthanasia. Now, euthanasia is interesting. If you read Martin Luther, you read John Calvin, you read commentaries even from the 1800s, they never deal with euthanasia. They never talk about it because it was a uniformly rejected idea by Christians and non-Christians really until the pretty recent past. It's an issue now that's out there swirling around, but there's no disagreement among Christians or non-Christians about it. As a matter of fact, it's part of the Hippocratic Oath, right? Do no harm. Um, So is abortion, for that matter, you know, that you shouldn't practice abortion and, you know, doctors do that all the time. So the Hippocratic Oath doesn't seem to have the power that it used to. um, But Christians and non-Christians alike with euthanasia have been agreed on this. and though, you know, just say a couple things about this. It is important to distinguish between terminating a life and terminating care. Now, now what I mean by that is there, there, there can come a point, Ecclesiastes says there is a time to live and there is a time to die. And, you know, some of you may have been around these situations or have thought about these situations, maybe with grandparents, maybe with parents. Um, so I know, you know, I'm like, this is like walking blind through a minefield, you know, talking about all of these different issues because there's personal stories connected to all these things, and I don't want to say that if you've done one of these things or been involved in one of these things that this is the unforgivable sin and you should never come back to RUF. I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that at all, but I am saying that it's important for Christians to understand, it's important for all of us to understand, what does God say about these things? How does this commandment um, apply to these situations? But here's the thing, you know, there are we get in these situations sometimes where heroic measures are used to extend a life that really ultimately brings about more misery and suffering, and the Bible doesn't require us to go on and on and on, stopping death from taking its natural course. And sometimes, you know, Christians, it, here's here's again, if you if you mix it up and say, honor God, but reverence life, then you will say, you'll end up coming to this situation and saying, well, no matter what, we need to do everything we can to keep this life going as long as possible. The Bible doesn't require that. But the Bible does require mercy. Uh, I think it gets a little more complicated when you start talking about, you know, removing people's feeding tubes and whatnot. We are told to feed people. We're not necessarily told that we have to keep people alive on a respirator in a vegetative state forever. Um, Again, uh, for every one of these things, we could have a whole hour ethics lecture and talk about all the ins and outs. But I'll just say this last thing, that families and doctors do not have the right to terminate a life, biblically speaking. Um, and, And, you know, we have to be disturbed about the growing movement to decide that some people, namely the handicapped and the elderly, are not worthy of life, and therefore the state or the doctors or the family has the right to terminate the life. There's a difference between terminating a life and terminating extraordinary care that's stopping death from taking its natural course. All right, but euthanasia is forbidden by this command. Suicide, it's not the unforgivable sin. I suspect that, I've known probably four or five of my friends that have committed suicide, you know. Um, It's not the unforgivable sin. It's important that you know that, but it is important that you know that it's a violation of the sixth command. We do not have ownership even over our own bodies. We are stewards of the life God has given us. That's why, that's why we're told that we should live a certain way, that we should be involved in recreation, should we be involved in the sober use of meat and drink. And my wife's wondering, well, you should listen to what you say, and I probably should more. Um, but this, you know, suicide is not your prerogative, biblically speaking. God says you don't have the right even to take your own life, biblically speaking. Um, We are stewards of our lives, not owners. That's going to come back again in a minute. Abortion. Again, this is a really interesting one, that it's an issue now, because until very recently, there were no Christian ethicists. There were no seminary professors trying to defend abortion. There are now. There's lots and lots of them. It was a very significant shift in the whole history of kind of ecclesiastical tradition and Christian thinking on this topic. And the really interesting situation that we're in now is you have Christian professors of ethics going back to arguments that were made in the Roman period that the Christians fought against in the first century. You know, Christians were actually known as the people who scooped up the babies that were left to die on the trash heaps. As a matter of fact, some of the Christians' early critics said that the church is made up of old women and children. It's all women and children. Why was it women and children? Because they would go pick up these babies. Abortion was practiced in the Roman era, and the arguments were used like this. Well the unborn child isn't a real person yet and it's part of the woman's body so she can do with it whatever she wants it's so fascinating now you find christian theologians using the arguments that the pagan romans used to defend abortion in the first century now they're coming out of seminaries it shouldn't be that way we should pray and work against this issue biblically speaking this is not this is not a confusing issue it's not a confusing issue does that mean that we should be mean To people who are confused about this, no. We should be persuasive, we should be loving, but we must be clear that it is unjust to take unborn life. Now there's distinctions that can be made about, you know, uh, I I think there are are debates that can be had about um, saving the life of the mother. I think often that is used um, when it's not really the situation. And now we get into the whole issue of the psychological health of the mother as a reason for abortion. I don't think the Bible would support that. Um, but, but be clear on this. The, b- the basic point of the scriptures is um, life begins at conception. That's, that's a biblical position. That's not just something that right-wing fundamentalists have come up with. And again, nobody debated this until really pretty recent times. Okay? Self-defense. Now here we, here we get to one. Exodus 22, verses 2 and 3, talks about this issue. I've had a friend of mine not too long ago tell me that he didn't feel that it was just ever for a Christian to be involved in self-defense. And he, of course, brought up the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, you know, if someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. We all know that passage. But Exodus 22, verses 2 and 3, talks about the situation in which somebody breaks into your house in the middle of the night, and you can't see who they are, and if, whether or not they have a weapon that could kill you, In that case, if you, in defending yourself, kill them, it's not a violation of the Sixth Commandment. If it happens in the day, Exodus 22 goes on to say, and you can see that they don't have something that will threaten your life, you are not allowed to kill them. So, you know, there there is a situation. God says there is an appropriate place for self-defense if your life is in danger. Even at the same time, lesser... Offenses, lesser woundings can be responded to by turning the other cheek. Turn, turning the other cheek, I, I believe what Jesus is saying in, in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't contradict Exodus 22. I think he's the author of Exodus 22. And they fit together, and the way they fit together is what Christians have always really understood about this, that you can defend yourself if your life is in danger, or if you believe your life is in danger. Okay. punishment. Capital punishment. Again, you know, Genesis 9, 6, Romans 13 are clear. Um, Capital punishment, biblically speaking, is a matter of justice and deterrence. Both of those are important aspects. And yet there are legitimate questions. In the Mosaic law, for instance, there is no place for prisons. So how do the fact that we have prisons now factor into this? I believe that's not the sole issue to think about, but it's important to think about it. There are 30 death punishable offenses in the Mosaic law. I don't, I don't think that we should have all those as death-punishable offenses because I think that prison is a legitimate, um, a legitimate option for some of those. But to rule out capital punishment completely, it, it, I don't think it's possible on biblical grounds. Now, should we work hard? Should we maybe? I have a friend that says we should stop doing it until we make the system more fair. You know, we do all kinds of things to make the system more fair, and I'm not opposed to any of those. I can take that and say that's a reasonable Christian position to say, but if you say that capital punishment is just ruled out of bounds by the Bible, you have a hard time making that case. Again, why? Not because we want to kill people. No. Because we want to honor and preserve human life. That's the reason God gives in Genesis 9. That's the reason um, Paul gives in Romans 13. There's a consistent, I hope what you're seeing is there's a consistent view, in all of these situations, that life is to be honored, but it's not the ultimate. God is the ultimate. War, just war tradition. um, I I put a little thing down there for you. This tradition, I think, captures the full teaching of Scripture. Christians have always had this idea that war for war's sake is not appropriate, and that there are definite limits to when war is legitimate. Um, there's a guy, Philip Ryken, who I thought he had a, in a quick little summary statement kind of summarized this view. It's this. Christians have long believed that a war is just only if it is waged by a legitimate government for a worthy cause with force proportional to the attack against soldiers, not civilians, and only when all other means of resolution have failed. It's a complicated issue. But that's a consistent Christian position has been for probably 17, 1,800 years. Okay. Um, I know there are Christians that disagree with that, but there's a reason why most Christians in most centuries have come down on this basic position. I think it's solid, biblically speaking. But what about the heart of the matter? (laughs) You know, this is not just a commandment that's there to help us solve our ethical dilemmas. It It speaks into all those issues. But listen, Jesus says that hatred in our hearts is a breaking of this commandment. Um, the, the Heidelberg Catechism says it well it says by forbidding murder God teaches us that he hates the root of murder such as envy hatred anger and desire of revenge and that he regards all of these as murder so how is your heart how is my heart I can't look at these lists and say well I've never I've never put anybody to death I've never killed anybody I've never killed myself obviously I've never you know been involved in some you know all these things and say well I'm doing pretty good Jesus will not let us do that and that Jesus didn't make that up. That was always part of this command. It was always part of this command that we are to honor God's image bearers, to work for their flourishing and their well-being, and to be involved in what is necessary for the protection of their well-being, even if it means the state having the power of the sword. is part of that, right? Remember what we said at the beginning of the study. When you think about your heart and you say, okay, well, yeah, I envy I seek revenge. I do it in a more, you know, socially acceptable way than, you know, sort of the Hatfields and McCoys. Maybe I you know, I don't do that sort of thing. But we have our ways of getting revenge. We have our we have our ways of envying. We even brag about it or laugh about it. God says all of that stuff is not fitting for people made in his image. It's not what you were made for. And yet why do we run to it then? Why does that stuff find its, why, why do we find that stuff in our hearts? The reason, ultimately, remember we said this at the beginning of the study, before you break any one of these commandments, you first break the first commandment. You first make God into something that is less than he really is in your mind that, that makes you feel like, well, God's not going to look out for me. God, God's not going to take care of me. Either he doesn't care or he's not powerful enough, or he's not good, or he can't figure out a good way to do it, so I'm going to have to do this myself. I'm going to have to take care of myself. God God doesn't care about what I really need. I need that. I knew. I really need that. I need her. I need him. We justify these things. We let them live in our hearts. We feed on them. Because we forget who God really is. And so it's not enough for me to say, well, don't think bad about people. Try try real hard. Don't think bad about people. No. Worship the Lord your God for who he really is. He is a good God. He's a God who delivered you out of Egypt. He can take care of what you need. He's a God who went to hell and back for you. He cares. Even to say it, you know, it's so ridiculous, the kinds of things. I think we, we think these things in our head, and you hear them said, and you go, that's ridiculous. Why would I ever believe that? It's one of the values of Christian community. So you can say those things with your friends, and they say, that's ridiculous. You know? You think you have to have this? You don't have to have that. Come on. Remember, we have to get the reality of who God is on our hearts if we would love rather than hate Worship is the key to having your heart softened. Rejoicing at what God has done for murderers like you and like me is the way that we begin to care for what he cares about. When you realize and remember what Jesus did for you as he's on the cross, listen, do you have have hope for your murderous heart? Of course you should have hope for your murderous heart. Jesus, while he was being murdered, said, Father, forgive them. So you know what Jesus thinks about murderers? He has more than enough mercy for murderers. When Peter, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, is preaching to the people that put Jesus to death, he doesn't soft-pedal it. He says, you killed Jesus. You killed Jesus. And the people there in Jerusalem are cut to the heart and they say, what shall we do? He doesn't say, well, forget it. You killed Jesus. That's it. He says, repent. Repent and be baptized. That God's mercy is big enough for murderers. I don't, you know, whether you've done one of the, the things at the top of the list that we consider the really bad stuff in our Christian culture, or whether you're just a plain old ordinary person who hates people. <laughs> Jesus says they're both terrible. And they're both so contrary to what God made you to be. And they both they both are an attack against him. Hating somebody else is not a minor deal because you're hating God's image. That is a big deal. But God's grace is bigger than that, and that's good news. Cast your eyes upon Jesus. It's the only hope that we have. His mercy is wide and deep. It's big enough for murderers. It's big enough for people who aren't even really sure what they think about all this stuff. Search the scriptures. I mean, I covered a lot of ground and a lot of stuff that maybe is new ideas or ideas that you've thought about, not sure what you believe about. Search the scriptures on this stuff. God God doesn't want you to be confused about this stuff. He wants you to think about this stuff. He wants you to be convinced about what human flourishing is from his perspective so that your life will be about bringing that to reality. You may not be able to get it all at once. I'm not saying that you can't vote for a candidate who may disagree with what the Bible says about some of these issues. But you have to have in mind this ultimate goal, that this command would be honored among all peoples. Because that's what God is committed to. That's what God is making. He's making a world in which this command will be honored among all peoples. Not just that there won't be killing, but that people will be honored and cherished and nurtured. You want a picture of heaven? That's heaven. That's heaven. And it should be starting right now. The church should be should be a foretaste, a foretaste of what heaven is going to be. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we, we just look at this command and we say, I can't imagine a world in which there's not hate. I can't imagine a world in which there's not killing. And yet, Lord, we know from your word, that you are committed. You are committed to that. And you are not going to back down until every knee will bow before you and your word and your desire and your will will be honored among all peoples. We pray, Lord, that we could long for that day, that we could work toward that day, that our actions now would be consistent with your goal for your world, that we would honor your image wherever we find it. Even when it it makes us uncomfortable, that we would count life so precious, so precious, because we love you. And Lord, where we find a breakdown, where we find that we're not caring for people, where we find we're hating people, Lord, would you remind us again, would you impress upon our hearts who you are and what you've done for us? that you would bring us back to sanity. As James says, or as 1 John says, if we hate our brother and say we love you, we are liars. So Lord, we come to you as liars and ask you to have mercy on us and to change us, to make us more consistent people. You have to do this work. We don't have it within our own power. But we have great hope because we know that this is what you're committed to. And so we can pray boldly that you would change us for your kingdom's sake. And we ask this in Jesus' name.